This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Have you ever had a salesperson or a sales organization give you the awesome gift of a coffee mug with their logo on it? Or maybe you are a salesperson and you work for a sales organization and you provide your prospective clients or your dream clients with a coffee mug with your logo on it. I just met Andrew, the CEO of PFL at the Sales 2.0 conference in San Francisco, California, put on by my good friend Gerhard Schwantner, the CEO and publisher of Selling Power magazine. And Andrew took the time to show me a new app called Swag IQ. And Swag IQ is integrated into your salesforce.com and it's integrated into your existing sales workflows. And what Swag IQ does is it allows you as a salesperson to trigger a gift based on a prospect's behavior. That means when they move into a different stage of the sales cycle, you can go ahead and send something when they get there. So as a salesperson or a sales leader, you never have to worry about picking the gift, packing the box, and the entire fulfillment process happens offsite. And all you have to do is click the button or let it trigger automatically. But Swag IQ is interesting because it goes a lot further than just fulfillment. It bridges the gap between digital and physical by alerting the salesperson within minutes of the gift being delivered. And you can send one gift to a particular prospect if that contact is important to you, or you can schedule what's called a swag bomb to hit the entire team at your target account. And then if you're in major account sales and you're working on what I would call a dream client, everybody gets something all at the same time. Swag IQ tracks the engagement rate for you, it tracks the response rates, and it tracks the effectiveness so you know which gifts are working and where they're working. Swag IQ clients are seeing great results with one area that I think is super important to note here. It's opening doors. And that, in my opinion, is the most difficult thing we do in sales now is opening relationships. It's most difficult to get that first appointment. And Swag IQ could be something that helps you do that. So check them out at swagiq.com and see how you can begin using intelligent gifting solutions that integrate into your Salesforce app. This episode of In the Arena is long. It is over two hours, and I've got to give you a pretty straight introduction to my friend Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is arguably the most important philosopher in the world today. He is the most widely translated academic writer in America, with 25-plus books translated into over 30 languages. He lives in Denver, Colorado, and he's a philosopher, an author, and a teacher, and one of the few people who can say that all of his major publications are still in print today. But what makes Ken especially relevant is that he's the originator or the developer of what would arguably be the very first true comprehensive or integrative philosophy called integral theory. And as Ken would tell you, he likes to think of it as one of the first believable world philosophies, and it incorporates cultural studies, anthropology, systems theory, developmental psychology, biology, spirituality, and it's being applied today in fields like ecology, sustainability, psychotherapy, 
psychiatry, education, business, medicine, politics, and even sports and art. So this is going to challenge you. It is going to stretch your thinking. It is going to stretch what you believe. And I promise it is going to be unlike anything you've heard before now. This is my friend, Ken Wilber, in the arena. Hey, Ken, how are you? Good, my friend. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thanks for taking time to record this with me. I think this is going to help people get a new lens on the world that they live in. Oh, my pleasure. So what I want to start with is why not just start with the easiest question of all and ask you, what is consciousness? And that I want to use to start up talking about the structures of consciousness. Sure. It's easy in one sense, and in in another sense, it's, it's one of the most complicated questions in the world. And there's still, for people that even study consciousness, if you look at like the Journal of Consciousness Studies, there's endless arguments over the fact that we still even have a hard time defining it. So uh, on the one hand, it, it's, it's something that everybody knows because it's an immediate, obvious, present experience. What you're aware of right now is something that's in your consciousness. And so anything you know is in your awareness, in your consciousness. And it's, it's, it's something that you know immediately and directly. You don't have to define it, knowledge by description. It's knowledge by acquaintance. It's something you immediately know, immediately are aware of. So it's sort of like the Supreme Court Justice's definition of pornography. It's like, you know, I might not be able to define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and that's the same way, same with consciousness. We know it when we see it. Now, there are some, of course, schools of philosophy that maintain that because the only thing that we immediately know is consciousness, that the only thing that's ultimately real is consciousness. And this is generally referred to as schools of idealism and various, there are some meditative traditions that can be interpreted in that way, mind-only schools, that there's nothing but Buddha mind or nothing but pure awareness, nothing but pure consciousness, and that when we make that discovery, then that's called enlightenment or awakening or waking up, and it's held to be the ultimate good in a human life. But then there's also the view of consciousness that sees it as one of several important dimensions. So there's like an exterior world of objective material objects, and those exist independent of human consciousness and and are arising. And those are all sort of interwoven in, with each other in various networks of various systems, including ecological systems and stellar systems and solar systems and so on. And then we also have other dimensions like our, our social dimension where we interact and there's where one consciousness knows another consciousness and so on. These three dimensions are sometimes referred to as I, we, and it. And so those are in an approach that I'm associated with called, called the integral approach. And integral just means comprehensive. So it's an approach that attempts to take on any particular topic, it attempts to take the major answers that have been given about that topic and find a way to bring them all together. So it maintains that there's something right about every basic perspective, simply because no human mind can create 100% error. We say nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. 
And so almost every approach has some degree of truth in it. And so we try to find approaches that synthesize otherwise competitive, arguing, apparently incompatible approaches. And so uh, one of the things we do is, is our approach includes the dimensions of I and we and it. And those are all very important dimensions of reality. And consciousness, of course, is then largely associated with the I dimension. And so it's awareness that you have of yourself right now and the immediate knowledge that you have both of your interiors and of things in the exterior world. And there though is in the it side of that, there are people who believe that consciousness is a reaction going on in the brain and that it could be identified. There are people that believe consciousness. There are those who believe it's strictly an I dimension. There are some that believe it's strictly an it dimension, and there are some that believe it's strictly a we dimension. Postmodernists, for example, believe that all knowledge is actually socially constructed. In other words, what you take to be your individual I is actually a product of we. It's actually a social construction. It's a network devoid of individual I's. There's only a we network. Again, this is what Integral does. It agrees with all of those. There's important truths about all of those positions. If you look at the, I mentioned the Journal of Consciousness Studies, you'll find that about half of the articles submitted to that journal maintain that consciousness is an I component and that only this I component is fundamentally real and that consciousness is primarily a direct, immediate, personal experience. The other half of the articles maintain consciousness is an it. It's a product of the brain. It's a product of neurophysiological processes going on in the brain. And the brain, of course, is a third-person object. It's an it. It's not an I, although they're correlated. And the integral approach maintains that actually I and we and it all occur together, and you can't actually have one without the other. So even though you have an I consciousness, no matter what thought you have in your individual I, there's a corresponding brain wave pattern or brain activity whenever anything enters your consciousness. And so the I goes with it, and both of them are set in context of we. So there's social, cultural background that gives us our language and how we interpret things, the various meanings and values that we have. And you can't have an I without a we. And you can't know an it without an I, and you can't have an I without a we, and you can't have a we without individual eyes, and so on. I mean, they really are all interconnected. And so one of the things that we want to do is we attempt to get any sort of self-knowledge is we want to study all of those major dimensions. And so if we were looking at consciousness just in the it component, then we would look at all of the really remarkable discoveries that have been made about consciousness, particularly in even the last 10 years, what we've learned about brain neurophysiology and neurochemistry and neurocognition is staggering. I mean, it's just, there's been an explosion of research into consciousness. And particularly, of course, how consciousness corresponds to various brain functions, 
various activities in the brain, various brainwave patterns. And this has happened because of advances in technology of brain imaging. So we have functional MRIs, EEGs, we have PET scans. And so it's uh, even in things that previously were, were pretty esoteric and far out, like meditation, we've had thousands, literally, of research studies on what happens to the brain when people meditate. And they've got some pretty good, not complete, but some pretty good maps of at least some of the things that happen when people meditate. And when they go into states of consciousness that are vastly expanded from their normal, egoic, small self and so-called small mind into what's sometimes called big mind or even far out terms like cosmic consciousness or unity consciousness or ultimate awareness and so on. And we can map a lot of these changes that are actually going on in the human brain. Before we get to states, though, I want to talk about, and you've read all of the developmental work, I think, that has been written, at least in modern times. I want to talk about, before we talk about structures and states, how human beings develop. And I want to talk about, I want you to talk about the three general stages that we go through. So I'm thinking of work like Gilligan and Keegan's. Can you describe sure. how we, we grow up inside uh, these absolutely. structures? Yeah, because one of the things that those of us in Integral have particularly been emphasizing is that no matter how much we have learned about consciousness by studying brainwave patterns, or it, the it dimension, the third person object dimension, that we still have to understand first person I dimension, because there are certain aspects of first person awareness that simply cannot be reduced to objects. And actually, most, even most scientists that study the brain will tend to agree that subjective awareness, I-ness, the I-space, can't really be reduced completely to objective interactions in, in a material brain. It's sometimes called the hard problem, the relation of, of I and it, or mind and brain, or mind and body, the brain being viewed as part of the body. Our take on it is that both of them, the I and the it and the we, that they all arise together, they're all mutually dependent, but none of them can be reduced to the others completely. It just doesn't work, and there have been schools of philosophy and psychology that for millennia have tried to give convincing arguments, reducing just one to the other. None of them have really succeeded because nobody fully buys them. That's why there are still schools that believe that each of these dimensions are fundamentally real, because each of them are. And so one of the most important ones there's been a lot of research done on, it's extremely important because almost nobody knows about this research. And that's research that's been done in how the I space, I consciousness, the subjective first person experience, how that actually grows and develops. Because what most people don't know is we actually have an enormous number of studies done showing that human consciousness, the I awareness, grows and develops through a set of relatively fixed stages. 
Now, these stages themselves evolved over hundreds of thousands of years. So they're not fixed in that sense. They're evolutionary. But these evolutionary stages often take, you know, a thousand years or more to evolve. And so at any given time in history, like right now, there are a certain number of stages that have unfolded. And those stages are available pretty much to all humans. And indeed, many of the models of these stages, and we'll get into what some of these stages are immediately, because that's the question that you ask, and so people will get a chance to see what we're talking about. But some of these models have been tested in over 40 different cultures worldwide, and there are no exceptions found to these major stages, we call them structures of consciousness, that grow and develop. And we actually call that process growing up. Because that's what happens is an individual, an infant at birth, is at the earliest or lowest or simplest of these structures of consciousness. And as they grow and develop, successive higher levels emerge. Now, these higher levels are actually more inclusive than the lower levels. So this might sound like a hierarchy, and in a sense it is, but it's, it's, it's often called a holarchy because each higher level includes the previous level. It actually transcends it. It goes beyond it, but then it also embraces it. It enfolds it. So it's not a dominator hierarchy. And a lot of people don't like hierarchies because all they think about are dominator hierarchies. And dominator hierarchies are nasty. They're bad. They're forms of social oppression like the caste system or the mafia or totalitarian governments or, or so on. And nobody likes those. They're all the nasty things that their critics say they are. But the critics overlook that there's another type of hierarchy that's often called a growth hierarchy or an actualization hierarchy. And this is actually how organisms, actually all evolutionary processes, how they grow and develop and become more and more and more inclusive. So if you look at just even the simple developmental evolutionary scale going from atoms to molecules to cells to organisms, that's a growth hierarchy. Each of those is a higher stage. Because each one transcends and includes its previous stage. So atoms are taken up in molecules. Molecules actually transcend atoms. They go beyond them. They're more inclusive. They're more complex. But they also embrace atoms. They include them. They actually enfold them in their makeup. Molecules don't oppress atoms or hate atoms or anything like that. They actually include them. If anything, they love them. They embrace them. And likewise, molecules are taken up in cells. Cells transcend and include molecules. And cells are taken up in organisms. Organisms transcend and include cells. That same process is occurring in these interior growth structure stages. And I actually did a book called Integral Psychology. And in that, I looked at over 100 different developmental models that gave versions of these structure stages of growing up. And what's so astonishing is that in all of these hundred or so models, you can see the same roughly six to eight major structure stages of development that all of these models point to. Can we and go to indeed, a huh? simpler model before we get into those stages? Because I, I want to get to 
the big integral, the waves that you have, but can you start with something like Gilligan's to show sure. this? There is a, a very simple structure that just about everybody generally agrees that these are That's right. And, and her, the various models, I say that, that they generally touch on these six to eight major stages, but there are some that are simpler and that are actually combining some of these stages. So Gilligan's model, for example, gives four major stages. And all the other models would agree with these four. It's just many of them would give, or she would give one stage, they would give two sort of substages. But these four stages are found universally, and they've been tested in cultures from rainforest tribes to Australian Aborigines to Mexican workers to Indiana housewives to Harvard professors. And there are no exceptions found to these central stages. Now, these are the stages that, that Gilligan used to actually explain what she referred to as female moral development. Because what Gilligan became famous for in a book called In a Different Voice was suggesting that men and women tend to reason differently, at least when it came to moral thinking. That men tend to think hierarchically. They think in terms of ranking. And they think in terms of autonomy, rights, and justice. And women tend to think non-hierarchically. They don't think so much in terms of ranking as in relationship. And that means care and communion and responsibility. And, of course, the feminists took that and ran with it. And because they took all hierarchies to be dominator hierarchies. And since men think hierarchically and women don't, then men, the patriarchy, is responsible for all nasty social ills because only men think hierarchically. But Gilligan's second point was that women's non-hierarchical thinking itself develops through four hierarchical stages. So again, she is looking at growth hierarchies or holarchies. And what she found, now men go through the same four stages, but in a different voice. But what she found is that the four stages that women go through, the first stage she called selfish. And that is the young infant female morally cares only about herself and just concerned about her own needs and her own desires and her own drives and so on. And so that's stage one, selfish. In integral, we also refer to that as the egocentric stage because it's ego-centered. And in stage two for Gilligan, she called care, because here the woman starts to extend care from herself to a group, so she can start to care for her family or her tribe or her clan or even her nation, or at a more complex level, she can care for, let's say, all members of her religion, or certain races care for all members of their own race, but nobody else. So they care for a group. But it's a very strong us versus them mentality. And so because it cares for a group, but only that group, we also call that stage ethnocentric. So it's expanded from egocentric, caring just for one individual, to ethnocentric, or caring for a whole group, or a whole tribe, or a whole race. But it still doesn't care for all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. But that's what happens at stage three, which Gilligan called universal care. And as the name implies, the here care is extended universally to all human beings, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And so that's a very, very, very important step. And humanity as a whole only made that step about 
two or three hundred years ago. We've been on this planet for almost a million years. And for all of that time, we were either egocentric or ethnocentric. And so because we were ethnocentric for most of the time, we had wars that we had. There were 13 years of war for every one year of peace. Every culture had slavery. And it wasn't until essentially what's called the modern Western Enlightenment in about a 100-year period from around 1770 to 1870 that slavery was outlawed from every major rational industrial nation on the planet and for the first time in history. That's because they had moved to this universal care stage. And so there were all these treatises about the universal rights of human beings. This is radically new. And moving to a world, we call this a world-centric stage, her universal care is world-centric because it's not just ethnocentric and it's not just egocentric. So those are three very important stages. And then there's a fourth stage that she called integrated and we call integral or cosmocentric. And that's where your identity can expand to include all sentient beings, not just humans. And it also, for Gilligan especially, meant that a woman integrates both feminine and masculine modes of thinking. And that's why she called it integrated. And so you can see those four structure stages of growing up are extremely important because clearly we want individuals at world-centric or cosmocentric levels of development. Part of the problem in almost every major nasty world conflict that you see in the world today, from terrorism to warfare, it's people at ethnocentric levels of development fighting somebody else at their ethnocentric level of development. And somebody at world-centric would not do what they're doing. Somebody at world-centric would never engage in an act of terrorism, for example. But somebody at ethnocentric, it's very common. Go back to the Crusades, and you have ethnocentric Christians at ethnocentric Muslims' throats. And that's been the, largely the history of humankind. So the fact that we discovered these structure stages of growing up is extremely important because we actually have a map now of the stages of growth that humans have to go through if we're ever to have anything resembling world peace or world harmony. And so you never hear that mentioned as part of the problem with world peace. You always hear it in economic terms or technological terms or people lacking food or poverty. All of those can contribute. Those are all part of an it dimension or part of a we dimension. But what's equally important is this I dimension. And we have to grow that eye from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric and even cosmocentric. And if we don't do that, then we're going to remain at egocentric or ethnocentric levels of development. And as a matter of fact, about 70% of the world's population today is at ethnocentric or lower levels of development. So the danger is the arrested development of these lower states, or lower stages, rather. Absolutely. Let's move into looking at this through your map, which is a much bigger map, but I wanted to start there because that's a simpler map that gives you an idea of some of the main big categories that you'll see. But you looked at, for sex, ecology, spirituality, I think something like 200 developmental maps. 
And right. you found sort of a center of gravity that existed in all of them that you could put your framework together, starting with this idea that everybody's got some partial truth to this. Right. But how many waves, you go much further than four. Right. How many waves or stages or levels are there by your count? And what are the big common ones that somebody listening to this who probably works in business, what are the ones that would be interesting for them to know and understand exist? Part of, there were several parts to your question. The idea about the 200 developmental maps was I had been looking at models of growth and development for some time. In other words, I was looking at models that were addressing the I space, the I dimension, the first person dimension, and the structure stages of growth that they would go through in growing up. Now, these stages were only discovered about 100 years ago. And these are very different than something we'll look at that are called states of consciousness. The states of consciousness are something that you're immediately aware of if you have it. You can be happy or sad or morose or ecstatic, or you can be in meditative states. You can actually have a feeling of being one with the entire world. When you have states of consciousness, you're immediately aware of them. You know it. When you're in one of those, you know you're in it. You know what it is. But these structures of development that are involved in growing up, like the four structure stages of Carol Gilligan's. When you're in those, you don't know you're in them. You can't see them by just looking within. So somebody that's at an ethnocentric level doesn't know that they're at an ethnocentric level. They don't know that their belief that men are superior to women, a sexist ethnocentric belief, or that the white race is superior to all other races, a white racist ethnocentric belief. They don't know that that's simply a product of how their worldview is mapping the world. It's not an actual reality. It's just how they interpret their reality according to the particular stage of development that they're at. So you can't see these stages of development. They're much more like rules of grammar. Everybody brought up in a particular language-speaking culture will grow up speaking that language fairly correctly. They'll put subject and verb together correctly, and they use adjectives and adverbs correctly. And In other words, they're following the rules of grammar of their language quite correctly. But if you ask any of them to write down what are those rules of grammar, almost nobody can do it. Because you can't see them by introspecting. You can't look within and just spot all these rules of grammar, even though you're following them very accurately. The same is true of these stages of growth. You can look within, but you'll never see one of them. So you'll never know that how you're looking at the world is largely a product of this interpretive grammar that you're following at each stage. And each stage has a different grammar. So egocentric stage has a grammar. Ethnocentric stage is different and world-centric and cosmocentric. And so I have been studying those models for a long time. And as I continued studying them, what I noticed was that in every area I looked at, there were certain evolutionary or developmental histories. Everything had some sort of evolutionary history. It didn't just show up fully formed. In other words, it grew and developed over time. And you could mark out these stages that it had, it had grown and developed, whether you're looking at an oak tree or a chicken or a human being or a nation. None of them just plopped into being fully formed. They all grew and developed. 
And they all went through stages of growth and development as they did. And so I started just making lists of all of these stages of growth and development. What I found that was, it was both interesting and also irritating is that as I kept gathering them, and at one point I, I would just write each one down on a yellow legal pad. At one point I indeed had over 200 sheets of paper all laid out all over the floor of my house. Each one with a different, in a sense, developmental list of stages. And they were similar in a lot of ways, but they didn't fully match. And the more I looked at them, the more I saw that they actually fell into four major groups. And so those were very, very suspiciously similar, but they didn't quite fit exactly. So like Carol Gilligan's stages would be similar to like Keegan's stages and so in, in terms of, of interior growing up. But there were other stages of development, biological stages, chemical stages, stages in the growth of systems, governments, nations, and so on. They just didn't match. And so it was it was very confusing. And it finally dawned on me that these actually fell into these four major groups. Two of the groups were looking at interiors. They were looking at the insides. They were looking at something from within. So we can take a human organism, for example, and we can look at it from within, and that gives us an eye space, a first-person view. Or we can look at it from without in an objective sort of scientific fashion, and that gives us that it view, the third-person view. Well, you can also, every individual also exists as part of different number of groups. So you can look at that individual from a singular perspective. It's just an individual being. Or you can look at it as a part of any number of collectives or groups. So there is individual and collective. And so when you look at a human collective, a human society, you can look at that from within. And you can look at that from without. And when you look at it from within, you get this free space this cultural space of shared values and shared morals and a shared linguistic understanding. And all of the subjective, intersubjective commonalities that we have that make us identify ourselves as Americans or as Protestants or as member of a particular political party or as members of a profession, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a business person and so on. So all of those can be looked at from within, what it feels like and looks like if you're within that group. It can also be looked at from without in an exterior stance of what's the actual number of people in the group, what's the birth rate, what's the death rate, does it have a monetary system, what's the exchange values, the history of human societies go from foraging to horticultural to agrarian to industrial to informational. Those are all third-person exterior views. Of groups. And so when you put these together, you get four boxes. You get an interior and an exterior of an individual and a collective. And we call those the four quadrants. And each of those four quadrants has these growth hierarchies. And they all kind of correspond. So you can look at a growth hierarchy from an individual interior view, from an individual exterior view, from uh, interior collective view and from an exterior collective view. And you'll see correlations in all four of those. So these four basic dimensions are I, we, and it. 
And then I and we, I is singular and we is plural of the interior. And likewise, on the it dimension, the object dimension, those are singular forms like an individual human brain. And there's plural forms or it's plural. And that just means what society, what humans look like collectively brought together into one group. So when we look at the mode of techno-economic production, foraging, horticultural, agrarian, that's an its view or a systems theory view. Systems theory looks at things as a collective interwoven network of individual objects. And so we call these the quadrants. And just because of the way we usually draw them on a sheet of paper, we call them upper left quadrant, upper right quadrant, lower left quadrant, lower right quadrant. And all that really means is the upper quadrants are the individual and the left-hand quadrants are interior and the right-hand quadrants are exterior and the lower quadrants are collective. So those were the four dimensions. Now, this is important in business, for example, because there are, if you look at management theories, for example, there are four major schools of management theory in today's business world. And what so often happens is that each one of the major schools in a particular area focuses on just one quadrant. So theory X, for example, is standard carrot and stick motivation approach. It can include quality control, but it focuses on the exterior of an individual and its behavior and how you can get the best management results out of focusing on that and giving the appropriate feedback and looking particular at exterior behavior and and what will motivate that, what rewards and punishments can be used, what carrots and sticks will work, and so on. As opposed to that exterior view in the upper right individual exterior is a whole theory and group of theories that look at the individual from the inside or the interior view. And those are called theory Y. And those include all sorts of things like Maslow's needs, hierarchy, where you have individual at physiological needs and then safety needs and then belongingness needs and then self-esteem needs and then self-actualization needs and then self-transcendent needs. Now that's one example of those six to eight major stages that I talked about that all of the models recognize. And Maslow is simply looking at it through needs. And so which level you and how you marketed a product would depend on which level of development a person was at. And so you're going to have very different, most marketing people just kind of think that they're, you know, there's a group of people and you're going to market to them and you're going to try to find ways that will work and, and all of that. And you look at it in very sort of objective exterior ways. But people looking at these interior stages realize that you have these six, seven entirely different value structures. And there's even a model that looks at these values of development that was developed by a person called Claire Graves. And he actually studied the development of values. And he found that it moved through also these six to eight major levels of values development. And so that becomes crucial if you're actually producing a product and you want to actually speak to a group that's going to buy that product. You have to speak the language of that level. Because if you don't, it's just going to alienate them. They're not going to find it interesting. They're going to turn away. And it might be a product they want or need, but if you don't language it so it fits their level of development, you'll never reach them, ever. 
And so that's one of the Graves values line has been a very widely adopted model that business marketing and human relations and hiring and so on really pay attention to some of those models because they're so effective at telling you the type of individual that will match both a particular type of job or performance that needs to be done in the company as well as a type of product that a person will want to purchase. And if you don't take those into account, you're just leaving out this entire dimension of what motivates a human being. And so you're not going to do a very effective job at all. So theory why would bring that up. And we'll come back to that because that's sort of one of the topics that you wanted to talk about. But to finish with the four types of management theories, about a decade or two ago, another sort of novel form of management came across, and that was called culture management. It was realized that, that all corporations, all companies have an interior set of values, ethics, mores, mission, purpose, goals, and so on. They have a culture, in other words. And managing culture became the premier goal of a good manager, according to theories of culture management. Now, these are theories that are looking at the lower left quadrant, the interior of the collective or the we space in a company. With that, I mean, you have somebody like one of the premier leadership gurus saying that culture beats business planning and eats it for breakfast. So all of a sudden, it became sort of the new kid on the block. And for a long time, was kind of the only thing business consulting in the know was working with was culture. Of course, it's not the only management theory that's going to work because there are at least these four quadrants and each of them is addressing a different dimension. And so if you're going to really be complete about how you manage an individual, you'll want to know about all four of them because all four of them have something important to say. And that's the whole point of a, of a integral approach. In the lower right, we said when we were discussing it that that was the place that systems theory focuses on. And according to systems theory, only the lower right quadrant, only networks of interwoven, systems of interwoven, dynamically interacting, objective events are real. Individual factors aren't real. Only these holes are real. But they only look at holes from an external, exterior, objective viewpoint. But that is systems theory. And systems theory, of course, is a very widely known and widely used theory of management. And people will often include at least some component of systems theory in whatever view they have because they recognize that all of the various aspects of a company are interwoven. And then the company's interwoven with all of the companies in its market. And then that market's interwoven with all the other markets. And those markets are interwoven with everything from the biosphere to geopolitical factors and so on. So you get these whole networks within networks within networks within networks. And those are all looked at from the exterior. They're all lower right quadrant. But of course, there's a great deal of truth to them. But they're not the only truth. And that's where systems theory gets in trouble because there are these other three quadrants. So once I realized that, all 200 of the developmental scales that I had fit into one of those four boxes. And so that's why using those four have become, even with some better known business consultants, has become kind of a hallmark of 
taking a complete approach to a problem is to make sure that you include approaches that touch on all four of those quadrants, on the I dimension, on the we dimension, on the individual it dimension, and on the, on the system's its dimension. But all of them are important, and they're all arising simultaneously, and they're all interacting, and they're all having a great deal of influence on the behavior of any particular individual. So that sort of gave me the a first breakdown of uh, ways to classify all the various approaches while also integrating them, pulling them together under a, under a single framework. And then, of course, in each of those quadrants, you have different sort of sub-phenomena going on. It's important to look at those. And so that's what we do when in the I quadrant, in the first person, subjective consciousness, upper left quadrant, we look at these structures growing up and at states of waking up. So we're looking at both these developmental levels, whether it's Gilligan or Abe Maslow or Claire Graves, or just the three that we've mentioned. And those are all giving variations on these six to eight levels of development. We can talk about those more in just a moment. And then another factor that's going on in, in the upper left that's important are states of consciousness. And we talked about those, including meditative states. And if you actually look at the great meditative traditions around the world, you'll find that they go through a similar sequence of stages. Only these are stages of states. So these are stages of things that you're perfectly aware of. Again, like love or hate or joy or lust or thirst or awakening, waking up, enlightenment, or so on. And so there are, are stages of states leading to waking up. And there are stages of structures that lead to growing up. And those are independent. Go you can some. be fully awakened in the waking up dimension and at a fairly low level of growing up. You can be very ethnocentric and still have a complete enlight traditional enlightenment experience. And you can see this. All you have to do is pick up books like Zen at War, and you'll see some Zen masters fully transmitted as being completely aware of Buddha mind or ultimate oneness or ultimate unity consciousness. They, they are fully aware of that. And they're also giving very ethnocentric, biased, racist, sexist viewpoints. Because waking up won't move you up that scale of growing up from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric. It will move you up the scale of waking up from being identified with a mere skin-encapsulated ego to being identified with the entire cosmos. But if you're at that ultimate unity consciousness and you are one with your entire world, if you're still at, let's say, level four out of eight levels, if you're still at an ethnocentric level of growing up, then the world you'll be one with will be an ethnocentric world because those higher levels haven't emerged in your case. And so you won't be literally one with all individuals because there are over your head world-centric levels of development that you're not even aware of. 
They're not even entering your consciousness. And so you can't be one with them. And because these levels of growing up were only discovered about a hundred years ago, but states, because they're fully conscious, we've known about states. Humanity has known about states going all the way back to maybe 50,000 years ago. So states have been, have been something that humanity has been studying for a long time. And that's why all the world's great contemplative systems or meditative systems give maps of the meditative states that you'll tend to go through if you take up a spiritual practice. So whether you're looking at St. Teresa's interior castle, she gives seven stages of state, meditative state development, stretching from the small ego to Christ consciousness, unity consciousness. And if you look at Zen, you'll find a, a similar five or six major levels of state development. There have actually been studies by scholars looking at the various meditative systems, and they generally find five to six major stages of meditative state growth. But again, you can be at any one of those states and at a completely different degree of development in growing up. And vice versa, you can be very high in growing up. You can be at the eighth of eight levels in growing up and still not have a waking up experience at all. And as that, most people in the Western world don't even know about waking up. That's a traditionally something that's been carried forward in the Eastern traditions and in a very small handful of Western mystical traditions, the mystical branch of Christianity and Judaism and Islam. But Most people also are unaware of the stages of growing up. And when you talk about eight, I think until somebody stumbles upon your work, most people don't know that, or until they stumble upon something like Don Beck's Spiral Dynamics, which right. is the way a lot of people come to find your work, I think, is through that, is, is the just, his is strictly values. He don't, used Claire Graves' value research, yes. Yeah, and you've taken all of these. Can you walk us through what the eight stages are and give people just a sure. view of, of what it is? Because I don't think people recognize like they don't recognize that there are states because you don't know until somebody explains this to you. They don't know that these exist. Right. I would preface this briefly by saying that in addition to these levels of development, you have to say, well, levels of what? You say, well, levels of growth. And you say, well, growth of what? And this is where we come on the notion of multiple intelligences. And I just have to briefly mention it because each intelligence, although it goes through the same level, that level will look different in each intelligence. And so what I mean by that is it used to be that we thought that humans basically just had one intelligence, and that was measured by an IQ test and was called cognitive intelligence, and that was sort of it. But over the last 10, 20 years, Howard Gardner in particular made the notion of multiple intelligences fairly well known. But now virtually every psychologist and philosopher agrees that human beings have upwards of a dozen different intelligences. So we have not only cognitive intelligence or something measured by an IQ test, we have emotional intelligence, which has become quite well known and also the uh, foundation of a fairly significant business management theory. We have moral intelligence. We have a mathematical intelligence. We have a musical intelligence. We have an interpersonal intelligence. 
We have an aesthetic intelligence. We have an intrapersonal intelligence. We have a kinesthetic or bodily intelligence. And so each of those are significantly different and they show us different aspects of the world and they're all very, very important. And what we particularly find is that different professions, for example, tend to focus on three or four of these intelligences predominantly. So if you really want to succeed, whether it's business, you'll tend to focus on, on a handful of those intelligences. If you're a doctor, it's a slightly different handful. If you're a concert pianist, it's a different handful. But if you really want to get better in your profession, you better know what intelligence you're working with. Because otherwise, what works to increase one intelligence doesn't work to increase another one. And so you might take up something that will increase your musical intelligence, but that's not going to do anything for your mathematical intelligence. So if you want to teach math and you're studying music, that's not going to help. So what we do find, though, and this is what's so astonishing, each of those 12 multiple intelligences, they're also sometimes called lines of development, is that each of those lines of development goes through the same basic levels of development. And those are the six to eight levels of development that I'm now going to run through. But I have to, I mentioned those multiple intelligences for a reason. And that is how you describe these six to eight levels will vary significantly from intelligence to intelligence. Because obviously the way you describe a stage, because all of those musical intelligences start at stage one, move to stage two, stage three, stage four, and on up to stage eight or so. And so if you describe those stages in the mathematical terms, the mathematical intelligence goes through, that will sound quite different than the stages described as the moral line goes through. And that will sound quite different from the cognitive line and so on. So I'm going to give a lot of different terms for these levels. And you just have to realize that almost any term is going to be a little bit misleading because it's really going to just apply to, you know, one or two intelligences. And then another term will apply to another intelligence and another term will apply to another intelligence. You can come up with at least 12 very different terms for each level. And so one of the simplest things that developmentalists will do and that I often do is that you can either use colors to describe these levels or you can use numbers or you can give them a general name. Now, the problem with the name, again, is that any name is going to be really misleading. But some of them are less misleading than others to sort of get across the general feel of these levels. And the one set of names that I've found the least misleading are names that a brilliant pioneering genius by the name of Gene Gebser gave to these. And he was describing basically levels of worldview development. And the names he gave those are essentially, I'm paraphrasing these a little bit, the archaic stage to the magic stage to the mythic stage to the rational stage to the pluralistic stage to the integral or integrated stage. Now, each of those will sound differently, again, in the different lines. So when we gave Gilligan's stages, her selfish referred to archaic and magic. Her care referred to mythic. Her world universal 
care or world-centric applied to rational and pluralistic. And her integrated level referred to the integrated or integral level. And then there are correlations. We gave Maslow's physiological needs, that's archaic level, then his safety needs, that's the egocentric or stage two or the magic stage. And then he gave belongingness, and that's the care stage, the ethnocentric stage, where you start to extend care into belonging in a group and so on. And then his self-esteem is moving into some of the upper or the first stages of universal care. And then his self-actualization is the upper reaches of universal care. And then his self-transcendence is an integral or the beginning oneness stages. So now I'll describe what those levels are actually like. And so you actually get a sense of what those names are, because just hearing the names again can be a little bit misleading. The infinite birth starts out in a stage of just fusion of its bodily self. It's identified with its material body. And it can't tell where the material body stops and the material environment begins. It can't tell where its body stops and the chair starts. That's the archaic stage. And in humans, that's about 500,000 years ago. And that was the, the transition from the great apes to actual human beings. And so very few adults are at that stage. You have to actually have severe brain damage or highly advanced Alzheimer's or something like that to, to be stuck at that archaic stage. It's the level that Maslow called physiological needs because in that archaic stage, our needs are, are basically our physiological needs for water, food, shelter, warmth, and so on. And those are basically the only needs that's motivating somebody at that first stage. So it's not something that the average businessman is going to see very much of. The next stage is the infant will separate its body from the surrounding world, but its subjective self and the objective world aren't yet fully differentiated. So they still tend to get mixed up. And so somebody at this stage, stage two, will tend to confuse any image of an object that they have in their mind. They'll confuse that with the real object itself. And so this is sometimes called animism, or it's Gebser's magic stage. Now, the reason it's magic is that pure forms of magic, that's how they work. So pure form of magic is like voodoo. If I make an image of you in the form of a doll, and I stick a pen in that image, then the real you will be hurt, because there's no difference. I can't tell the difference between that image of you and the real you. And so I think that by manipulating that image, I can magically affect the real world. I can do a rain dance, and it will magically make nature rain. And that's the, it's also called egocentric, because it's, it's essentially just the very first person self-oriented stance, and it believes the self is omnipotent, self can do anything. So it's also, to the extent that some part of this remains in an adult, it is the formation of things like superstitious thinking, that all of us have a little bit. That's that traces of that stage left over in us. And it's often by itself just called an impulsive stage. 
because the self is just identified with the body and its impulses, emotional, sexuality, lust, and so on, and it just wants immediate gratification and so forth. So the next stage is the mind actually starts to emerge. And this is around three to five years in today's infant. And it was maybe 50,000 years ago in humanity's overall history. And as the mind emerges, it has what's called intentionality, which is that it can make a word or a symbol or a sign, and that will represent something in the world. And it can tell the difference between the two. It can tell the difference between the sign that it uses, like the word for tree, and a real tree. But that's called intentionality. And it's essentially a type of will. And so as this capacity for will starts to develop, then you move out of the second stage of of the impulsive stage and into a stage of power. And this stage of power, spiral dynamics that you mentioned, which is based on what the values line looks like, calls this stage power gods. And one of the reasons is that the sense of magic, which at the previous stage, the individual had, magic was that you can order the world around just by changing your thoughts or, or by poking a pen in an image of the, of the real person. But as the understanding that that didn't work tended to die down and that all of that rain dancing didn't really produce that much rain and that the ghost dance that the Native Americans did at Wounded Knee won't really stop white man's bullets and they were convinced it would, tragically. It did not. But as humanity learned that, it tended to transfer this capacity for magic to supernatural beings or individual humans that were sort of supernatural, that were power gods. And so these, the early gods had this kind of power. Or a human being that was a superman had this sort of power. So all of the kings of the early empires that started to arise at that time were thought of literally as descendants of gods or as literally being gods themselves. And this didn't mean they were enlightened or awakened. It just meant they had more power than anybody alive. Usually they force, were a power right? God. So that's, it's also, that's the third chakra. These also has some relation to the chakras. The six to eight stages show up in seven chakras. First chakra is material chakra. It's also called the Anamaya Kosha, the sheath made of food. Second chakra is sexual, emotional, sexual, impulsive stage. And the third is the power chakra, power stage, which is what we're at right now. And so that is also called egocentric because it still doesn't really take the role of other. It's still within Carol Gilligan's selfish stages of development. And you can again see how one stage, like Gilligan's selfish stage, actually in more detailed models contains substages. And here we see that the three stages we're talking about are all substages in her one selfish stage. But this one's often actually called egocentric. And it really is a power stage. And now business people do run into this a fair amount. Because even if the center of gravity of a CEO or a president or a manager can be at a bit higher level, there's often an underbelly, a fair remnant of this power drive. 
And a lot of politicians have Donald Trump at power drive. And that's what they want. And that is, it, they don't care about its effect on other people. It's simply egocentric. They want power for themselves. And that's all that matters. That's where we start to see these stages actually showing up in the real world. Because a fair number of adults do have a fair amount of this stage remaining. And it can be a real problem. Tune in next week for part two of the conversation with Ken Wilber in the arena. My new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, will be released by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016, and it will be available at bookstores everywhere. But I don't want you to go to the bookstores or Amazon.com and order that book quite yet. What I want to recommend you do is go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. And this is a pre-order site that's going to allow you to collect bonuses for having ordered the book early and ordering it through this site. Even if you only buy one book, there is a bonus package available for you. In this case, it is a workbook that allows you to apply the core lessons of the 17 core chapters to your own work. So maybe you need to work on self-discipline, or maybe you need to work on resourcefulness, or maybe you need to work on prospecting. You can go through the workbook exercises and immediately improve the results that you're producing in those areas. But there's more. If you are a sales leader and you want to provide this book to your team, which I recommend, you can get additional bonuses. For an order of 10 books, you can get 17 training videos that allow you to use those videos for team meetings and align your team around whatever initiatives you want. Maybe it's closing right now, or maybe it's business acumen. Whatever the chapter is that relates to a gap that your team needs to close, you're going to find some resources there in the workbook and in the videos that allow you to notch your team up. And then if you want to get insane, there are massive bulk buys available to you. If you buy a thousand books, I'm going to do a keynote for you. And for some lucky buyer who orders that many books, you're going to get a keynote from me that I will also include Jeb Blunt, Mark Hunter, and Mike Weinberg as speakers at your sales kickoff event. So go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. That is preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Pick up a copy of the book now. It will be delivered to you in the middle of October and pick up the bonuses. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.